Sunday blessings to you all. This is the Lord's Day, the day of resurrection that begins a new week and offers a new opportunity to be drawn by grace more deeply into the paschal mystery of Jesus Christ. Through the gifts of the Holy Spirit, may each of us graciously respond to Jesus' invitation to live more deeply his passion, death, and glorious resurrection and ascension, and be drawn into loving communion with God our Father. You are listening to Encountering Jesus with the Church Fathers, a podcast pondering patristic commentary and insight on the sacred scriptures, the sacred liturgy, and living as a disciple of Jesus Christ. I am your host, Father Mark, and I welcome you to this podcast on the 29th Sunday in Ordinary Time. Guiding us this Sunday in opening the Word of God is Origin of Alexandria. Regarded as an ancient Christian writer, he undeniably influenced some of the great fathers of the Church, as well as believers and theologians throughout the centuries. He was the oldest of seven children, born around the year 185 into a very devout Christian family. In the year 202, a persecution of Christians erupted, and while many fled, Origen's family remained, resulting in the arrest and eventual martyrdom of his father, Leonidas. At the age of 17 or 18, Origen penned an exhortation to martyrdom, a work he addressed to his imprisoned father with the intent of strengthening and encouraging his father's resolve to remain steadfast in his witness to Jesus Christ and to accept the grace of martyrdom. Following Leonidas' martyrdom, Origen continued his insatiable thirst for knowledge and availed himself of some of the finest teachers in Alexandria. Origen soon discovered a second love, that of teaching. While Origen was a gifted teacher in many fields of human knowledge, it was love of scripture that seized him to the core of his being. The local bishop asked Origen to prepare catechumens for baptism within the context of the Alexandrian Catechetical School, founded years earlier by Pantaeus and enhanced by St. Clement of Alexandria. Building on their foundations, Origen's contribution resulted in the School of Alexandria becoming the premier center for Christian theology. Due to some unfortunate difficulties with the local bishop, as well as an invitation from the bishops of Caesarea, Origen left Alexandria for the Holy Land. He produced even more commentaries on scripture and honed his allegoric method for biblical exegesis. In the year 250, another round of persecutions erupted, this time under the Emperor Dacius. Origen was imprisoned, and according to some of his biographers, 
Origen was tortured severely and then given a period to recuperate, only to have the pattern of torture and recuperation repeated. The emperor did not want Origen to die a martyr, but wanted to break his faith and commitment to the person Jesus Christ. Such did not occur, and because of Origen's faithfulness, history has bestowed upon him the title Adamantus, Greek for hard as diamond or man of steel. When the persecutions ended and Origen was released from prison, he died about six months later, around the year 254. Origen was a prolific writer, and a number of his writings are extant. On this Sunday, we listen to an excerpt from his commentary on the Gospel of Matthew, reflecting on the episode proclaimed in this Sunday's Gospel. The intention of the present passage, according to the literal sense, appears to me to be as follows. The Jews at that time had their own teaching and way of life in accordance with the law of Moses, which estranged them from the Gentiles' manner of conduct. And they had a teaching which said, I will struggle for the truth unto death and the Lord will fight for you. And so, they resisted the nations who ruled them because they did not want to transgress the law of God. Indeed, they were put in danger of utter destruction numerous times by the Romans, who desired to introduce a statue of Caesar into the temple of God, with the Jews resisting and hindering those who had become stronger than them because the Jews had sinned. But we find from the records of the histories with regard to the time of Tiberius Caesar how the people were endangered then by Pontius Pilate, with Pilate attempting to erect a statue of Caesar in the temple and those who prevented it beyond their ability. Something similar is recorded also to have happened in the times of Gaius Caesar. Indeed, we would venture to guess that insofar as the nation was being watched over and the vineyard of the Lord, the house of Israel, and the man of Judah, his beloved planting, was fortified all around by what the prophets call a wall, nothing so terrible took place, but rather something even more unexpected the first person mentioned above, Pilate, to whom the Jews handed over Jesus, dared to defile the temple of God. And in the time of the Savior, then, when the Jews were being compelled to pay tribute to the Romans, there was speculation and deliberation among the Jews as to whether it was proper for those who are devoted to God and who are his portion to pay tribute to those ruling them, or rather to fight them for the sake of freedom, unless they might be granted to live as they choose and not pay tribute. It is related in history that 
Judas the Galilean, whom Luke mentions in the Acts of the Apostles, who led a great many Jews in revolt, taught that it was not necessary to pay tribute to Caesar, nor to profess Caesar as Lord. But in this time, the Tetrarchy desired to persuade the people to yield to the present state and not to choose of their own free will a war with those who are stronger, but to pay tribute. Yet the present text of the Gospel does not evince any of these things clearly, but for the person who is able to look with close scrutiny, the text at hand presents such things in this way. For the Pharisees who desire to entrap Jesus in speech would have no position to do so. So they sent their own disciples with the Herodians to inquire of Jesus whether it is lawful to pay the tax to Caesar or not. If he would confess that it is not necessary to pay, and if he agreed with not paying. You should also observe whether it is indicated in the present story that the Pharisees who desired to ensnare Jesus in speech sent not only their own disciples to inquire concerning the tax, but also along with them the Herodians. For it was fitting that among the people at that time those who were teaching that the tribute should be paid to Caesar were called Herodians by those who did not want such a thing to happen, whereas those who, by imagination of freedom, refrained from the paying of tribute to Caesar, seem to have been the Pharisees, who had exacting knowledge of Jewish precepts. But should someone not want to take this in this way, let them indicate how those Pharisees who desired to entrap him in speech send their own disciples, but they also send the Herodians who are inquiring the tribute. For what sort of snare would it have been when Jesus answered whether or not he wished that tribute be paid to Caesar, except, as we have proposed, that if he had refused to pay tribute to Caesar, the Herodians were about to hand him over to the Romans as though teaching apostasy. And should he allow, paying the tribute, the Pharisees were about to condemn Jesus as though seeking to please man rather than teaching the way of God in truth. Examine for yourselves that it is the Pharisees' disciples who say, Teacher, we know that you are true, and that you teach the way of God in truth, and that you show deference to no one, for you do not look unto the face of man, as though they were encouraging him through this praise to not show partiality to the Herodians, who also have in mind the things of Caesar, in order that when, in accordance with the Pharisees' plan, he pronounces that one should not pay tribute to Caesar, he might be handed over to the Herodians by them. Note also the passage, Jesus knew their craftiness and said, Why are you testing me, you hypocrites? 
So he understands that he is being tested by the Pharisees who approach him with craftiness, such that in whatever way he answered, they would conspire against him from his answer. Let these things be said, therefore, about the present passage from the gospel according to the literal meaning, with the accounts of Mark and Luke agreeing with similar things recorded, insofar as you are able to see, by setting the gospel side by side and closely examining them one to the other. For there is no difference in meaning in Luke from what is said by Matthew about the matters in the passage and similarly with Matthew in regard to Mark. In all cases, we are taught by our Savior not to devote ourselves to those things that are said by the masses and, for this reason, appear as esteemed from a pretense of piety to God, but rather devote ourselves to the things that are said, which are commended by examination and coherence of reason. For you should attend that, when asked whether or not it is necessary to pay tax to Caesar, he did not simply pronounce what seemed right to himself, but he said, Show me the coin used for the tax. And he inquired, Whose image and inscription is this? When they said that it was Caesar's, he answered that it was necessary to render to Caesar his things when he asks for them, and not to defraud him of his own things from an imagination of piety. Certainly, one must not render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's while not rendering to God the things that are God's. And yet a person who renders to Caesar the things that are Caesar's is not hindered from rendering to God the things that are God's. But someone could offer a figurative reading of this passage in this way. We are composed of both soul and body, and let what excels them now be mentioned, that we are composed also of spirit, and we are obliged to pay some tribute, as it were, of our bodies to the ruler who is called Caesar, namely, such things as are necessary for the body, which has the somatic image of the ruler of bodies. These things include food, sight, rest, and sleep. We are also obliged to pay other things to God, who is the king of the soul, since the soul is by nature in the image of God and such things as are commensurate with and appropriate to the nature and essence of the soul. These are all the ways which guide the soul to virtue and the practices in accordance with virtue. Those, then, who are teaching the law of God with regard to the matters of the body and the things owed to it, will not glorify those things. 
for they do the equivalent of those who conspire not to pay tax to Caesar, insofar as possible, they afflict the body with fasting and vigils, and they practice every kind of abstinence with regard to the body and its necessities. But there is another group, different from those just mentioned, who do not clearly apprehend the things concerning this passage. They imagine that one must also pay their obligations to the body. But our Savior, the Logos of God, clearly distinguishing the legitimate obligations to the body from the spiritual obligations of the soul, says, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and the things of God to God, for the tribute to somatic things has an image of Caesar, which is all that we are owed to the body and nothing more. I know that another explanation could be proffered for this passage. The ruler of this age is figuratively called Caesar, but the king of all ages, who involves no symbol at all, is everywhere named God. Since then, we have something of the ruler of this age, that is, the things according to vice, we are not at first able to render to God the things that are God's unless we render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's when we put away all the things of vice. Because of this, the Savior says to the one who shows him the coin and the image on it, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And let us observe with regard to the passage that if ever we are tested by those who seek pretexts, presenting certain problems, not so that they might learn, but so that they might as far as possible condemn us, let us listen to our words based in experience that we are obliged to be completely silent, nor to answer haphazardly, but circumspectively and with circumspection to, as far as possible, stamp out the pretexts of those who desire pretexts and to teach unassailably the things that save those who desire, by hearing, to be saved. The Pharisees could be taken as the teachers of various Jewish traditions and the Herodians as that word which the masses deem royal treasury of the Jews, who are thus called simpler. From each of them, therefore, they inquire of the Savior about the matter of tax. But he answers them in the way we have set forth. Now, since they do not desire to learn when they ask him, but to entrap him in speech, and to test him. For this reason, when they heard the things that he said in response to their inquiry, they marveled. For he did not give them pretexts to conspire against him, 
And so they did not remain with him as the disciples. Nor did they simply go away, as it is written concerning the others. But they withdrew from him and went away. Such people are those who withdraw from the Logos and are unfaithful to him and absent from him after hearing him. Indeed, it would be wrong to say that this is about those, after hearing, reject even hearing. For they withdrew from Jesus and went away. But as for us, let us say what the bride says. I beheld him, and I would not leave him. All holy men and women, pray for us. Let us pray. Almighty and ever-living God, grant that we may always conform our wills to yours and serve your majesty in sincerity of heart. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you, in the unity of the Holy Spirit, God, forever and ever. The Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Go and announce the Gospel of the Lord. <laughs>